The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to Night Fright. Settle in, folks. This is your time to relax. You've worked hard all week. You have a full hour off. I give you complete permission. Give yourself permission for that one hour off. Take this time to relax. We're going to take you on a wonderful journey tonight and educate you at the same time. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going, settle into that comfy chair, kick your feet back, get the comforter up. It's cool out there tonight. And uh, neighbors to the south who got inundated over the weekend with snow, can I tell you, <laughs> stay warm, get the fire going, just relax. Tonight, folks, special journey, a very, very special journey. The book is called The Aztec UFO incident. It has been penned by Scott Ramsey, Susan Ramsey, and our guest tonight, Dr. Frank Thayer. Let me read this as a uh, as a synopsis to the book, if you will. Between June and July, you know, 1947, it was the Roswell incident. Well, just eight months later, only eight months between that, there's a window of eight months between the two. March 25th, 1948. The high desert of New Mexico in the early morn. A rancher left his home to get his goats out of the corral. Now there's a big, loud noise that draws his attention to the sky where he sees a silver flying saucer. Now the saucer is wobbling as if in distress. The saucer scrapes along a rock cliff causing sparks. It then heads north and lands on a mesa. Now, there's a group of witnesses gathering to examine the craft, and they include ranchers, oil field workers. So there's a lot of witnesses, folks, which we're going to get to tonight. Police, trained police, a county commissioner, and a preacher. They find that the craft is fully intact except for a small hole about the size of a quarter. That's very tiny. They go back to one of their trucks and grab a pole and then they begin poking in the side of the craft. Now suddenly, the craft opens and reveals two slumped over dead beings. Let me repeat that again. The craft opens and reveals two slumped over dead beings. Now this incident has now become known as the Aztec 
UFO incident. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Frank Thayer is a PhD. Thayer is a New Mexico native with extensive journalistic experience. He is a professor emeritus at New York, Mexico State University, New York, New Mexico State University. I was thinking of the snow. He is a writer, editor, photographer, and educator. Frank has also lived and taught in Canada, in Tirana. <laughs> it's my great <laughs> pleasure to welcome Frank to the show for the first time, and I can guarantee you not the last time. Frank, it's a pleasure to speak with you tonight. How I am you? so, I've been looking forward to this. I'm glad to be with you. Me too, my friend, because this, you know, what sparked my interest is, is that window that I just mentioned between Roswell and March 25th, 1948. There's a period of around eight months. Now, that seems awfully coincident, more than coincidental. It seems like there was something happening in and around that period that, the, you know, we've got the Roswell incident, and only eight months later, we suddenly have the Aztec incident happening as well. Can you start us off now? It says that there was two slumped over dead beings. Can you describe those beings that you've researched and uh, what people have said they look like? Okay. From the witnesses that been, have been interviewed and the 1950 book by Frank Scully, Behind the Flying Saucers, which revealed everything and should have been part of the public consciousness, but that's another story. We'll get to it later. The the beings were 38 to 42 inches tall. Yeah. They were small, like they're little guys. Mm -hmm. And they had slightly larger heads than normal. They had larger eyes, not much in the way of nostrils or nose, and not much in the way of ears. They were all wearing one-piece coverall uniforms with buttons, but no rank insignia or anything like that. And <clears throat> the supposedly... They found anywhere from 14 to 16 bodies. The two slumped over the console, but down in the base of the saucer, they found a whole bunch more, another baker's dozen. And uh, they, were, they were pulled out. Uh, but the, the guys who were there and interviewed, who were, I mean, these are 18 and 19-year-old oil field workers. They're out there walking up on the, on the saucer, and you and I both know what it's like to be 18 or 19 and say, hey, guys, watch this. And... Uh, but they found this hole in a porthole and described by Doug Noland as being like mirrored sunglasses, but there were no mirrored sunglasses in 48. And they found this hole, and he looked through it. And you're right. They, you gave a great synopsis. They stuck a long pole through that hole, and they hit a couple of buttons inside the cabin. And the saucer just opened up from being completely without seams, bolts, rivets, or anything. Suddenly it opened up. Now, we, also, we all saw the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, and apparently it was something like that. It just opened up, and they were wandering around, and the military came later. Only later. Can we talk about the bodies? Were any of the bodies, were, were, were any of them still living? Or were they all been what was presumed to be passed away? No, they, they were all dead, and apparently, the way they were described, they looked like they had been cooked, they were charred, they were dark brown instead of being gray or green or whatever aliens are supposed to look like. And there's been a lot of speculation since then as to whether it was decompression coming down from the stratosphere or if it was the microwave radar. Remember, radar at the beginning was very crude, and it was microwaves. And we had very powerful 
uh, microwave radar in the 1940s to protect Los Alamos, where the atomic bomb was created, White Sands Proving Ground, where they were shooting B-2 missiles, and uh, Roswell Army Airfield, where the only atomic bomb group in the world at that time had was located. That may have attracted the guys, right? Well, that's what they say about Roswell, too. You know, mm-hmm. it's... it's um... A good friend of mine who's the MUFON director here in Ontario, Michel Deschamps, says they started visiting because all of a sudden the kids got the matches when we started lighting <laughs> off nuclear weapons. And I think there's probably some validity to that. I think you know. so. Yeah, uh, because pretty dangerous stuff what we were playing with back then. And uh, we certainly don't have, and today we don't have the moral fiber, I feel. I mean, we're still shooting each other's butts off everywhere around the world. There's conflicts everywhere. It's ridiculous. Technology has outstripped our morality. Completely. Completely. Frank Thayer is our guest tonight, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. I urge you all to get this book. It's an important book. Um, It sits well with all the other research that's been done on Roswell and all the other incidents that uh, accompany Roswell. This is another one that's just as alarming. And as I said before, there's only an eight-month window that takes place between the two as, um, incidents, Roswell and the Aztec UFO incident, which is the title of the book. It's penned by Scott Ramsey, Susan Ramsey, and our guest tonight, Dr. Frank Thayer. This thing is crashed. Um, all these people start coming together. Was there one person, you know, was there a, one person in particular that saw it and went over to it first and then started making phone calls? Okay, the the rancher who saw it go over his property before dawn, uh, he was so alarmed it hit the cliff of, of opposite his property and kept on going throughout Sparks, and he went to a telephone in 1948. There weren't many telephones in New Mexico, let me tell you, and he went to a telephone at a, a public phone that was available for ranchers and called Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to tell him what he'd seen, and they. They got the description and told him not to worry, just to go back home. So now we know that the uh, armed forces were alerted, even unless they already knew that it was there. Mm. And so um, he saw it, and that's the last he saw of it. And um, the next thing was the saucer landing on the Mesa. It didn't crash. It settled down in a controlled landing, even though everybody aboard was dead. And the reason it was discovered was because... Oil field workers were told that there was a fire out in in the Hart Canyon area, and they were supposed to go out there to check to make sure the oil oil drip tanks were not in danger. There's thousands of oil wells in that corner of the state. And so these guys got out there, and they walked up on the mesa, and the smoldering brush was not a problem. But they saw this disk, and some other oil field workers showed up, some ranchers showed up, until there were about 16 people there, including two cops, which is very strange being so far from a little town. So, But the one guy that was interviewed most thoroughly was a fellow named Doug Nolan. We've got a CD of his interview. He described it in great detail. Now, that could be uh, just a made-up story, except Scott Ramsey found another guy that was on the Mesa, and before he died, he revealed what he had, he had seen, and he told a story that was absolutely identical to what Doug Nolan said, and they didn't even know each other. In courtroom, that's good enough for a conviction. So uh, that's that's where we stand with the witnesses. And 
uh, there's a chapter on the preacher, and but the military arrived very quickly. You know, they botched the Roswell thing. Sure did. And, and by Aztec, they had their act together, and they were ready to swoop down on it as quickly as possible, swear everybody to secrecy. And let's go back. In 1948, you believed your government. Absolutely. Your government would never lie to you, and if they told you it was national security, you could never speak of it. You did it, and we have changed since then. Yeah, I think the Vietnam War did that, and perhaps yes. the Kennedy assassination. You're right. Yeah, the lying and the cover-ups have taken place. Let's talk about that. Now the military shows up. Are there still witnesses on site when they show up? Yes. Everybody stayed on the Mesa until the, the uh, Army or Air Force, they all wore the same uniforms at that time, mm -hmm. uh, got up there and said they separated everybody, interviewed them separately, told them not to say anything, and they said, you leave and you're not coming back. And they did. There was one rancher who was there. And we have from his um, family, he went out before dawn to this place on Hart Canyon. He came back and he told his wife, I never left here today and we'll never speak of it again. And that was the last he ever said about it. Holy so cow. They, were, they were really either scared or, or thoroughly con conditioned not to speak. The preacher, that was another story. He, he got there by accident because he saw a lot of traffic going down this dirt road. And he was a missionary. He lived in a little town in Colorado. And he went all over the area doing Baptist work. And he got up on the mesa, and he saw this, and he was sworn to secrecy. But he went back to his little church in Colorado that night, and he called his deacon and his deacon's son, and he said, I've got to tell somebody. I saw something that changed my whole view of life and the world. And the son who told us the story, the son said, the reason I remember that so clearly was because he was weeping, and I never saw a grown man cry before. Wow, isn't that interesting? Now, how did this story start to leak out? Everybody sworn to secrecy. Of course, you expect the military to keep a top secret um, uh, cover over everything. At what point did this, start, this story start to leak out? Okay, let's... Uh, Let's go back a little bit. And even though sure. we had witnesses, the witnesses didn't talk. But the people who worked on the saucer, they took the thing apart and they, they sent it to Los Alamos on trucks. And they called the top scientists in the nation to study it. And these scientists thought that the government was going to, in 1949, that the government in a few months is going to reveal everything so the public will know what's happening. And so they, in turn, talked to their friends outside the, the scientific community, including one Silas Newton, oil man, wealthy millionaire. And he was also a, a college-trained geophysicist, so he was no, uh, he was no, uh, I was going to say Donald Trump, but that's another. <laughs> um, oh, we can and, get to that later. If like. <laughs> and so Silas Newton talked to a friend of his, Frank Scully who was a famous reporter for Variety in the late 1940s. He did Hollywood reports, and uh, they told Frank Scully the story. Mm. Here we go to the University of Denver in 1950. In March 1950, Scientist X was supposed to get up and talk to a science class at noon one day about flying saucers, and he got cold feet. In 1950, well, here's what Frank Scully said. 
the scientists who would tell their story for nothing in 1949 would not talk for $20 million in 1950. So the scientists refused to say anything, but Silas Newton, who wasn't working for the government, went on stage, and we have that lecture that he gave to the University of Denver. It's beautiful quality. It was done on a wire recorder. Wow. You and I don't remember those, but I've seen a wire recorder. and But the quality of sound is tremendous, and I've got that on CD, and I listened to it. He got up on the stage and said, there is such a thing as a flying saucer to a 1950 college audience. And he spoke for, oh, maybe 30, 40 minutes. And then he got whisked off the stage, and the government was at University of Denver mm. within an hour. And they didn't care what he said. They wanted to know who, he's, who it was because he went on as Scientist X. And they tried to find out who it was and where he was from. And that was the start. And we go to California now where Frank Scully write, writes the book. Now, you're beginning to think, why weren't we so much aware of this 30 years later? Well, Frank Scully wrote a book, sold 50,000 copies, which is a major bestseller in 1950. And there was all sorts of discussion with Kenneth Arnold's sightings and all that was, was done. Right. The book came out, and it talked about where Frank Scully had never been in New Mexico, but he talked about the Rocky Mesa. It talked about distance from Aztec. It talked about all these things. And here was a, a spoiler. There's always got to be one of those. The spoiler worked for the San Francisco Chronicle. His name was J.P. Kahn, C-A-H-N, uh, aptly named. But he heard about this, huh. and he wanted to buy the story from Frank Scully so he could write the book and become famous. Scully said, nope, I won't do it. And he wrote the book, published it, and J.P. Kahn was so angry that he vowed to get them. And so he began to lay his plans to destroy Silas Newton, to destroy Frank Scully, and Silas Newton's friend, Leo Gebauer from Arizona. Two years later, J.P. Kahn, for his, all, all his other failings, Kahn was a great writer. I've read his stuff. And he is a, uh, it was a vendetta, but he wrote a story for True Magazine, which was a men's magazine long before Playboy came out. And he, Flying Saucers and the Mysterious Little Men, a very long article, which was only about Silas Newton being a con man. And he, con, talked to the FBI. He wanted to get something against Silas Newton. He finally found a, a Denver oil man who was willing to swear out a complaint against Silas Newton for some um, some kind of deal they made. And if you're in the oil business, you are you are not exactly a straight arrow, I don't think. Um, I don't. As a matter of fact, I don't think you can get rich by being totally honest. That's another story. <laughs> uh, but in 1953, November 1953, Khan was able to get charges laid against Silas Newton hauled into a, a district court in Denver, and he was found guilty of fraud. But they never sentenced him. Hmm. They only charged him court, court costs and let him go on his merry way. But the goal had been achieved. What they wanted to do was destroy the story. It worked. From that day on, the Aztec incident was seen to be a hoax. And as one writer put it, that's all it ever was, was a hoax. And so people just dropped it. 
But also remember, Roswell was not even known then. That's Roswell right. was a one-day event, and it wasn't until Stanton Friedman found um, Jesse Marcel that they brought out the book uh, Roswell Incident. I remember getting that when it first came out, and it was a blockbuster for me. That finally proved what I always suspected was true. But the Aztec incident still remained until a fellow named William Steinman read Frank Scully's book in 1982 and drove all the way out to New Mexico to see if there was any truth behind it. And he found the Mesa. He found the the government leavings. Well, they had buried sea ration cans, ammunition clips, and stuff like that they left on the Mesa. But there was no alien forensics because the saucer was, was intact. Nothing. There was no debris like there was in Roswell. Mm. And so Steinman brought a book out in 1986 called UFO Crash at Aztec, A Well-Kept Secret. It was so well-kept that I didn't even find out about that book until 2006, and it never sold when he brought it out. And at the same time in 1986, Scott Ramsey. Here's Scott Ramsey, who's a businessman. He sells electric wire for generators. And he was in the Four Corners, and he heard some people say, oh, yeah, it's out at the old crash site. He said, what? What crash site? And they said, oh, yeah, there's this place. Supposedly there was a crash out there. And he got curious, and he drove all the way out there on this dirt road. And he's now been out there, he says, at least a couple of hundred times. He's camped on it. He's studied it. And he, he said he just wanted to find out. If it turned out to be a, just a, an old wives' tale, fine. But he found everything fit. And I, I met Scott Ramsey in 2009. I had on my website, www.frankthere.net, I had done a little essay on, based on Steinman's book saying, I think that maybe Aztec was real. And, well, uh, Scott got in touch with me and said, hey, we're, you want to get in this game? And I've spent the last six years, but, but Scott and Suzanne have spent 30. Uh, but I'm, I'm totally immersed in it. Oh, by the way, Brent, did you know X-Files debuted on Sunday? Uh, the, the new X-Files series has debuted, and Mulder says that Aztec, he mentioned Aztec, and that it was more important than Roswell. So we sent Chris Carter a copy of the book saying, okay, go with it. <laughs> Chris Carter is producer of the X-Files, by the yes. way, folks. Now, you mentioned Scully and Scully. No, that's a stretch. Yes. Okay, yeah. It was, it was on purpose that uh, yeah. uh, Dana Scully was was named that. They came from Frank Scully's Is book. Is that right? That's I didn't right. know that. Yes. See, only on Night Fright Show, uh, folks, because that's where the guest educates the host. Because <laughs> I didn't know. That's wonderful. That's great. I had no idea about that. Now, what happened to the craft? Uh, you know, we, we kind of figure out what happened to the, uh, to the evidence in terms of Roswell. Did the same type of thing happen? A truck showed up, they lifted the spacecraft onto the truck, covered it up, and Area 51, here we come. Okay. What happened was, and Frank Scully reveals this, a scientist told him that the thing was modular. They got inside, mm. and they found that it was held together by pins, and they were able to separate it into three separate sections. Three sections, right. and they brought these, what they called the dragon wagon. The Dragon Wagon was a low-boy trailer for hauling tanks off the battlefield in World War II. Sure. Yeah. And so they were able to put these, um, these sections onto these wagons and haul them off the Mesa and down the, the back roads to Los Alamos. And 
So uh, we have there's a whole chapter in the book on moving the craft because Ramsey said it's got to be possible to move the thing or the story falls apart. And he, he spent a lot of time actually reenacting the moving of the craft and going finding the road that would get them out of um, the Four Corners area and down to Los Alamos. So it's a very interesting uh, and very well-researched chapter. See, that's in the book, too, folks, The Aztec UFO Incident, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That will take you to a place where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. And I told you you're in for a heck of a ride tonight. Didn't there it I? is. There's there the book. it is. There it is. It's a great book, folks. You're going to want to get this and add it to your library, and it's a great time for um, just relaxing in, in your favorite chair and reading a good book and uh, finding about all this information that has been covered up, and that's where I want to go next. The military must have virtually, how can I put this on air, um, became very nervous. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I was oh, going to say completely themselves, but anyway, because, you know, all of a sudden you've got this top secret thing. They've had everybody sign this. They have to move everything. And all of a sudden it's starting to see the light of day. Roswell again, that's starting to see the light of, of, of day. Do you feel at that point that contact had already been made between the military, the upper echelon, and the ETs? I don't know. It's hard for me to speculate about that because there's no evidence for yeah, this. Supposedly, the, there was a, a meeting at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico in 1954. I, I tried to contact the base, but the PR people just laughed me off. And, uh, of course, nothing like that ever happened. Okay, I, I really believe you. And <laughs> yeah, it was only Lee Harvey Oswald, too. Right? Uh, okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that um, they must have been seeking contact all they had were dead bodies and perhaps a live one at roswell they're not sure but the i i think the upshot of it is that they wanted to keep it secret and they decided that hmm. and of course in canada there was this fellow wilbert smith who sure who Very found out that, that he said hey this is the bigger secret than the h-bomb in 1950 and you also know that paul hellyer whom we all remember mm -hmm that he he got he went out in front of people said we've been in touch with these people there's all sorts of species visiting the planet and he he wasn't exactly a wacko guy so uh but the thing is i'll tell you this i don't think the government or governments will ever tell the truth they will never let the public know what they know for whatever reason if whether it goes back to the 1938 orson wells broadcast mm -hmm. i'm not sure but they don't believe that uh, the public can handle the truth. I, of course, I don't agree, but they think that society would collapse, just like when Cortez visited the Aztecs. But uh, I, I don't think so. But uh, the government's doctrine is to protect the secret at all costs, and that's you know that's filtered over into other cover-ups, and it just continues. And yes. you know we're at the point now where there's so much disinformation and misinformation that it's hard it's getting harder and harder to filter out what's real and what's not real. And uh, I'm big time into the Kennedy assassination, as you know. Oh, and yeah. Gee whiz, um, just trying to figure out if the CIA files are actually real or somebody put them out there to throw you off. The same thing in the UFO community. There's so much of that going on. Now, I just want to mention Mr. Wilbur, Canadian um, bureaucrat working for the Department of, oh, I can't remember the department, but he had written a note 
to the United States asking if UFOs were real. The note he got back was yes, but a detailed note. And on the television show, when you're watching right now, check out the screen because that whole story is appearing right before you. And uh, the other person that was mentioned was Paul Hellyer. And Paul Hellyer, during the 60s and the 70s, was Canada's defense minister. And I remember it well. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, P.I. Trudeau was, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> was prime minister. Uh, oddly enough, his son, Justin Trudeau, is prime yes. minister right now, which is kind of cool. He's an idealist, and I like that very much so. Um, all that to say is Mr. Hellyer's been on the show, and he, um, he is adamant that there are ETs and there are UFOs. And uh, if anybody would know, it would be a minister of defense, without question. And a uh, very stalwart fellow. He almost became prime minister, actually. Yeah. He was in the race for it. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's the kind of credibility that this fellow carries. Let's go back to Frank and talk some more about the Aztec UFO incident, the name of his book, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. You'll be able to uh, order it from the comfort of your own home. And I'm truly enjoying this. Okay, the bodies. We have to discuss the bodies. Now, the way you describe the bodies, and I didn't want to mention the Roswell incident because there was bodies found there, very similar. Yes. Uh, the parallels are stunning and shocking. Yes. Uh, in terms of the bodies that were found both at Roswell and both, both at the Aztec uh, UFO incident. Any idea of what happened to the bodies, the same deal? Were they finally ushered off to Area 51, we presume, and perhaps in storage there? Okay, the critical path there, I think, mm-hmm. the saucer was taken with all its contents to Los Alamos, which is a very protected place, right. great security. Yeah. And then we now have found out there's a witness that's come up who knew something about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio. And we're, we're doing this, and it looks like it could be the next book, that there's a, a hangar there, or not Hangar 18, but a building there, 829, where these people, this woman was going to her own birthday party in this great complex, and she took a wrong turn, opened a door, and found herself in a hangar with a big metal disc and security showed up and hustled her out. He said, well, what is that? Well, it's a flying saucer. And well, what, what is it from? Was that a, a place like Roswell? Oh, no, no, that's Aztec. She was told specifically. And she thought, oh, are you talking about the Indians down in Mexico? He said, no, Aztec, New Mexico. So that saucer, as far as we're concerned, and we're going to follow up on this, ended up at Wright-Patterson to start. Now, they had cryogenic facilities at Wright Pat. So the bodies could have been taken there. The first thing they would have to do is preserve them. And Area 51 in 1950, 51, 52 was still uh, just a, a test range. They were setting off atomic bombs in, in Nevada and things like that. So, but very likely that Area 51 would become the next repository. But when you have more than a dozen bodies to pass around, mm. they could go to research facilities at Edwards Air Force Base in California, maybe down in Miami. Um, who knows? And we've heard that story about President Richard Nixon taking Jackie Gleason yes. down and yes. showing him aliens. So it's a great anecdotal tale. But researchers, such as we try to be, want to stick with the facts we can prove so that we don't get snookered by disinformation. 
And by the way, Brent, uh, one of my courses that I taught for years was propaganda and public opinion to try and get journalists to understand the nature of propaganda and how powerful it is. And we talk about disinformation, which creates uncertainty. And when you have uncertainty, that people are not likely to believe one thing or the other. And that's what the government wants. They want you to be uncertain about things. Whereas we're looking at this and saying, you and I know it really happened. But the mass public is still just gradually coming along. 33% believed in, in 1950. 55% today, Stanton Friedman found, believed that some UFOs are extraterrestrial craft. And the more education you have, the more likely you are to say they are real. Hillary Clinton um, has just come out and said that if she is elected, she will release f some files. Do you think this is just, how can I put it, uh, bogus, something to say to attract a certain demographic oh, sure. to vote for her? Oh, yeah. Do you think she'll actually free realistic files or more I don't, disinformation? Presidents who go into office, uh, Jimmy Carter was going to do that. Um, we had uh, Bill Clinton said he wanted yes. to know, yep. and no one ever revealed anything. I think you get a briefing when you get into the office, and they say, you're not talking about this. You don't have a need to know, mm -hmm. and we think this is so critical, you dare not speak of it. Only Ronald Reagan said that we are, uh, we're being, there's an alien presence, and he said that in a speech, but the still... It didn't come out, and so we're stuck where we are, uh, doing our own research, publishing our books, and trusting that people who think about it are going to say, "I got it. I got to accept it. It did happen." Yeah, I encourage people to do their own research all the time and to question everything, especially yes. after the Kennedy assassination. As I said, Vietnam, um, you know, and and that template seems to be played out over and over and over and over again. Where you see the government is. Benghazi is a great example. That's the most oh. recent example I can think of. Um, I was honored to have interviewed Chris Tanto Peranto, who was there that night. And he said they were just hung out to dry completely. There yes. was assets. The movie is true, folks. If you've seen it, there was assets ready to be moved. 13 hours. The yes, yeah. they should see it. 13 hours. And the State Department just shut it all down and left them to hang out to dry. So we see this template over and over and over again, so we have to question everything. Um, and we know that there are media people that are working for the CIA. The CIA will feed them information, and they will just regurgitate that. That's a proven fact. Uh, it's a, there's a book out on that, actually, and all kinds of great people have verified that without question. Let me jump in here Please for do. a moment. Please do, because uh, uh, this is your expertise. I know Oda, um, a, a little treatise on this, and he knew some people in the CIA. And the CIA called the New York Times their mighty Wurlitzer. CIA called the New York Times their mighty Wurlitzer. Anybody who's over, over 30 knows what a Wurlitzer organ was. Yes, yeah, it's an old keyboard, folks, and uh, it used to spin around, if you will. Yeah. 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 That's, unbel that's unbelievable, and that's the New York Times. Okay, let's go back into it. Um, now, we're, we're, we have to put this, these two sightings in context. There's a lot of younger folks that are around today that, you know, just weren't alive back then. We're in right. the middle of the cold, beginning of the Cold War in 48. By the time we've moved to 54, you just mentioned the, um, the Eisenhower meeting with the aliens. We're kind of in the middle of the Cold War. It's escalating. So 
we can kind of understand the reason we're just out of the Second World War for the top secret and uh, surroundings around everything. But it seems to me there's something more. When the President of the United States doesn't have access to the top secrets of all secrets, who does? And they must be the ones that are running the show, not even the elected president. Now, that is, that is scary. And I don't care whether they call it Majestic 12 or MJ-12 or something else. There is a shadow government that has more power than elected representatives. That's unbelievable. And yet people aren't aware of this fact. They think that, you know, the president, of course, has access to everything yes. and beyond. And that's not the case at all. Absolutely not. Um, who's in charge? <laughs> I don't know. I think that uh, as far as we're concerned, we don't, I don't think we feel any, any uh, problem. This is so far back in time. That the go- and we don't have any we don't have any artifact we don't have anything that we can say uh, that needs to be suppressed so we don't expect the men in black to come after us but Scott Ramsey mm. did at one time before his first book came out <clears throat> he did have a break in at his house in North Carolina and all that was taken were some uh, negatives and some files related to UFOs. It, they didn't steal his TV or his computer, anything like that. And he thinks that that was uh, possibly related to the questions he'd been asking. You know, it's funny. I just watched the movie uh, Trumbo, the story about uh, Dalton Trumbo, mm-hmm. and um, a writer that was blacklisted during the McCarthy area. Right. Because they, he was a communist, and, of course, you, he, was, he was subversive. He was part of a fifth column, which was complete nonsense. And so if we put ourselves in that paranoia that was, uh, uh, that was taking place at the time, and you've got all these UFO movies coming out at the time, was that part of the disinformation, do you think, the UFO movies from Hollywood? and Why not? I mean, hmm. uh, part, of you, part of disinformation is to give good information from a spurious source. In other words, uh, you let the facts leak out a little bit, then you put some, uh, some really wacko stuff together with it and you mix it all up and throw it out against the wall and see if it sticks and so people do know about ufos that was a great time for flying saucer movies within the 1950s yeah but Mm -hmm. it worked because then you had what they called the robertson panel in 53 saying okay we're going to study this and no there wasn't anything to it there was uh, there were no flying saucers over washington in 1952 and so on you had the condon committee in the 60s whose express purpose was to debunk all flying saucers and yet a member of the condon committee who whose conclusion was reached a year before they made their report he visited the crash site several dozen times. He admitted that to Scott Ramsey, and yet he was part of the cover-up. Go figure. He was right in, oh, gee. So they planted him right in there. Boy, isn't that incredible. Mm-hmm. Now, you, t- you taught propaganda here in Canada, in Tirana, <laughs> Centennial College. How Can you give some examples of how people can weed out the nonsense, the horse manure, the dung? and get to the real meat and the truth? You know, what I tell people is you look at all these stories, and what you need to look at is the motive for the story being there. Why is this story published, broadcast, 
uh, why is this movie made? Documentaries are not really documentaries. They are. They always have a a motive, and usually you find that in the music behind the, the behind the visuals. But if if you question why somebody is telling you these things, you will co- go a lot further to identifying disinformation. Well, what's the source? Do you have the names? Can you follow up? Can you find the person who actually said this? And it will generally disappear because you can't find it. However, with a lot of the well-researched flying saucer books, whether it's Roswell or Aztec or the Betty and Barney Hill abduction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or Travis Walton, sure. and I've met, I've met Travis, uh, he got picked up. I, I don't care what anybody says. He got picked up and kept for five days and dropped. And so I don't know about any other abductions, but I, I know that happened. There's, so, just to interrupt you folks, there's a whole section um, of alien abductions right there, people that have been abducted uh, at the www.nightfrightshow.com website. And they're all free to you for you to watch in the archives. Also, while you're there, click on tonight's guest book cover called The Aztec UFO Incident. Uh, co-written, by the way, by Scott Ramsey, Susan Ramsey, and our guest tonight is Dr. Frank Thayer. Frank, um, going back to the bodies again, uh, do you think they still exist? Do you think they've been exterminated? Do you think they've been... Any speculation what's happened? I would have to speculate. I think they're more valuable than gold, platinum, and diamonds. I mean, well, they're, sure. yeah. this is... They've got alien positive. chemistry. They've got... Yeah. Uh, body parts they've got organisms as, as we go into space we're wondering how these people functioned in space and and there there was a lot of things different about their physiognomy and there was a fellow named leonard stringfield and he wrote a lot about autopsies about mm-hmm. uh, bodies the only reason we don't know more from len he's dead now is because he promised a, anonymity to the doctors who talked to him and so when he talked about the uh, alien autopsies, real ones, not the fake one that was in 1994, but he, uh, he said, well, there's no way you can double check because I promised these people I would never reveal their names, and he never did. So that's why we don't have anything. Uh, if you're a doctor or, or a government scientist, uh, they own you. And if, when you retire, if you ever say anything, where, where does your pension go? Yeah, exactly right. You know, I, I, I had a Churchill secret spy on. Um, he was an 86-year-old World War II vet several oh, yeah? years ago. Oh, fascinating. He told all these true stories about Patton and everything else and being in the underground and uh, saving Jews and all these special op things. It just Again, it's in the archives, folks. My reason for saying this is because he was only allowed all those years later the war ended in 45, of course, folks, and this was a couple of years ago. He was only allowed then to tell his story. His story had been finally declassified. Mm-hmm. And so these are this this is real. I mean, they classify these things. Look at the Kennedy assassination. I, oh, yeah. I keep referring to that. Because there's still thousands and thousands upon documents that haven't been released. Well, they say 2036 they're going to release some of them. <laughs> I don't believe that. I don't believe they ever will. Well, you know, and thank goodness there's an expert like you that's able to sift through this stuff and say, no, garbage, no, garbage. Oh, this one, this one looks authentic. Well, and I'm right now as you're talking about it, I remember the day when the assassination happened. I was a reporter in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and I 
heard about this, and I, I read the story, and I said, well, I'm, I'm a gun guy. Mm-hmm. And said, there's no way that somebody could get off five shots with a bolt-action rifle and a scope and hit something. Maybe one shot, and that's about it. So I don't care what they say about it. There had to be more than one shooter, and they've never disproved that. Yeah, I agree. I agree but completely. they still want to hold that the Warren Commission was the facts. And so Oliver Stone, for all his, his failings, that's a great movie. Sure is, and um, that movie resulted in them opening up more concealed yes. files, and I have to give Oliver credit for that as well. Now, when you're doing your research, Frank, um, I mean, you're going back several decades. How hard was it for you to do your research? I mean, to find not only um, some type of oral traditions that have been passed down by family members, but also actual documents. It must have been just almost impossible. We got to hand it to Scott Ramsey. The guy's a bulldog. He's he spent almost half a million dollars and. 30 years running down the story, going to different states, talking to different people, going to archives. He went to the U.S. Air Force archives of Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, and he has about 55,000 documents that relate marginally to, to Aztec or used to disprove some of the debunking claims and so on. But people, people are tough. Uh, Doug Nolan and Ken Farley, the major witnesses, they were on their almost on their deathbeds when they finally uh, told their stories. Uh, there's another guy who supposedly was in on the recovery. Chapter 3 of the book talks about him, and he was in the Air Force. We thought he was dead, but now we've suddenly found out that he may have survived after all, after Vietnam. And he, he was there on the Mesa, and he knows about the recovery. And we have gotten some, some things like that. And here's something else. I want to throw this in just for your your listeners. Somehow, and it's only a coincidence, but everybody that Scott was able to find who was on the Mesa that morning did very well in life. They prospered. Now, you figure an oil field worker, 18, 19 years old, how come he gets rich later in life? And uh, go back to Roswell. Remember that Mac Brazel, just a dirt poor rancher hand all of a sudden two weeks later he has a brand new ford pickup and he's able to buy a frozen food locker in tularosa new mexico and where did he get that money Mm. i think the carrot and the stick work very well i think so too yeah especially when somebody's got a gun in their (laughs) pocket yeah absolutely with their question now have you guys been threatened at all have you guys been approached to say you know maybe you shouldn't be spreading this type of thing Mm. No, I've got to say that no one bothered me. I think that they're, that's because Aztec was successfully put down as a hoax, and they're figuring, well, nobody's going to be able to resuscitate this corpse, and but it's not turning out to be true. Uh, the book is picking up momentum, and like I say, the X-Files mentioned it, and I think we're, we're on a roll, and the three of us, we've got pretty good control over it, and we we know where we're looking for other sources, and we're hoping to sort of build a firewall around it so it doesn't get debunked Great. again. Now, in Roswell, they came up with a cover story, per se, which was the weather balloon story. <laughs> and, and the weather balloon got blown up, and I think the weather balloon story has been blown up, too. Um, 
All that to say, have they tried to come up with some kind of cover story for the Aztec thing? Oh, sure. And we have a whole chapter on, so birds of a feather flock together, P-F-L-O-C-K, because Carl Flock was a former CIA guy who was a friend of Scott Ramsey's and was a debunker, and he's, he was a skeptic. But we go, we go through all the alternative explanations, and the only thing they're left with is it did not happen because it could not happen. That's the only thing they've got. <laughs> Despite the evidence to the contrary. Yeah. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the magic bullet. I keep bringing up the Kennedy uh -huh. assassination because these cover-ups, folks, I guess what I'm trying to say is the cover-ups and the false flags go on and on and on and on to this day. And I had just mentioned again Benghazi. So there we go, you know. Um, and the truth about Benghazi, you can check this out. I had Larry Hancock on, who's uh, one of the greatest um, intel researchers in the world. They were running guns. The CIA was running guns through Benghazi, um, down through North Africa. Some of those guns ended up, guess where, in Syria at the time, to the militias in Syria. I'm shocked. What did some of the militias in Syria turn into who were fighting today? Yes, That's indeed, right. folks, our friends. Daesh. Yeah, ISIS. So yep. this is the reason for the cover-up. And this is the reason for the lies. Once again, we try to manipulate things, and it just doesn't work out, does it? It just doesn't, just causes more deaths. Well, we have uh, a lot of people want daddy to tell them everything is safe. And those are the people who listen to this. But those people who do research and say, I got to know the reality, uh, they're listening to the show. Yes. And thank goodness for folks like you and uh, Susan and Scott for bringing books like this to our attention and this whole incident. Do you think there's other incidents out there that we're going to come across as well? Yes. You, oh, yes. Yeah, there must be. There, there's more and more reality. We know about a um, Mexico's Roswell. We know about there's a Cayman, Arizona crash. We have found one in the eastern part of New Mexico in 1963. Wow. Uh, there's been a lot of crashes and a lot of recoveries. And isn't it amazing that they've never been in major media? Now, I have a lot of my students who graduated and went on to work in wire services and so on. Sure. And one of them became a bureau chief. And she said, I said, well, why don't you use UFO stories? And she said, you know, I don't know. It's just we don't do it. The only UFO stories are those that have a, a funny conclusion. And, uh, of course, we told you it was, it was not real. And if it has a logical so-called explanation, they'll use it. But if it's unexplained, they, they won't run it. Do you feel the Vatican, I'm going to go in a bit of a different, different direction, do you feel Vatican was part and parcel to the cover-up in the early days and perhaps might be changing? Well, the, the pronouncement of the Vatican, they have opened the door saying that the, there may be life out in the, in the cosmos, uh, something that if you look at the billions of galaxies and billions of stars in the galaxies, statistically it's guaranteed. Yes. But we... Uh, I think the Vatican held it down as long as possible. They didn't have to burn Giordani Bruno again. Uh, but yeah. we, I think that they really have said, uh, we're going to place a bet on this. We've had our, it on red, now we're going to put it on black too. So if it is opened up, that we are still covered. And, I, you know, I don't believe that existence of aliens is going to destroy people's belief in God. Of course it's not. 
No, I mean, it's all part and parcel to the same thing. Yeah. You know, so there are brothers, there are sisters. Um, I had Dr. Francis Collins on the show, and uh, he led the team that broke the genome, and he was saying, I asked him a question, I said, what percentage of genome is the same between all human beings? And I thought he was going to say, oh, 70%, 60%. I thought, wow, even that's pretty inspect. He said 99.9999999999 is the same. So, you know, everything comes from the creator, the creation, if you will, the Big Bang Theory, yeah. everything's intrinsically connected, whether we like it or not, and um, that's a fact. Was there anything that stood out that really, really shocked you in the story, in the narrative? Hmm. I don't know. I think that the whole thing hmm. is so amazing, and it all fits together. It's just it's modular in its own right that we have been looking for things that don't work and we can't find them. Uh, whether it's Frank Scully's book, uh, William Steinman's book, our 2012 book, our, our 2015 book, all these things, everything we find says, yes, this is real. And to me, it is that. But if you, there's one thing that I keep coming back to is those two witnesses, yeah. two witnesses who are on the Mesa, March 25th, 1948, and when they're very old, they finally break their silence, and they don't know each other, and they tell the size of the disc, the number of people on the Mesa, the two cops who were on the Mesa, uh, how they got out there, and, and how they were sworn to secrecy. Everything fits. The place, the people, the event, and to me, without collusion, you can't break that down. That's pretty amazing for that to happen when two people tell the same story that aren't connected. Now, the police officers, did they file a report on any of this? Was there a twist to the report? Or did they <laughs> of even course bother? not. No, uh, never but happened. One guy, we think, we, don't, we haven't pinned it down. He's dead now, but his, uh, he was a state policeman. He's one of the cops that was on the Mesa. The other one was local. And we have a chapter in the book on the, the Farmington Armada. The Farmington Armada was in 1950, and where you had hundreds of saucers flying over the town of Farmington, um, and it was front-page news in the Farmington Daily Times. Well, the state cop who was on the Mesa and saw the, the 1948 disc, he reported to the newspapers that it was fluff from cottonwood trees floating in the air. Now... That reminds us of Donald Menzel back in the 50s, who swamp gas and temperature inversion and uh, weather balloons. And these things today are so ludicrous, oh, but yet man. they were considered to be official explanations from the government. Jeez. Yeah, the magic, uh, the magic bullet once again. <laughs> Off we again. go. Yeah, zigzag, zigzag. Canada has everything that I would want. It has the best women, it has the best culture, yeah. but it doesn't have a desert, and I'm a herpetologist, so uh, one go. of my hobbies. I love rattlesnakes, and uh, you can't find them very easily up up around Perry Sound, but they have them, but you know, yeah. I, I love rattlesnakes, so I'm back in the desert, but I miss Canada too. Well, you're missed. If you get back, you gotta give me a call, we'll meet, we'll go for a beer. We'll That's do it. That's my invite to you. 
Folks, I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. I want to fa- thank Frank Thayer for being on the show tonight and bringing us this amazing story. And he'll be back, as I said. The book is called The Aztec UFO Incident. It is co-authored by Scott Ramsey, Susan Ramsey, and, of course, our guest, Dr. Frank Thayer. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you, Frank. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time. Witness accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.